Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to this narration of the web series Humans Don't Make Good Familiars, taken from Reddit. If you're new to the series, there is a playlist listed in the description. And as always, hope that you enjoy. Chapter 13 Jake's Point of View Are you ready, Jake? Zuma asks as we finished my preparations. Lieutenant Datahu had a condition for her cooperation with the memory delve. She wanted a sparring match with me. As I'll ever be, I said, summoning my armor, Jericho, onto my body. Do you have a plan to win? Zuma asked, perched on my shoulder armor. I started walking to the pit for a bout. I'm not expecting to win. She's a professional with years of experience. I'm just a lucky idiot with a couple of pointy magic sticks, I said. That is true, she agreed. Maybe a bit too quickly, though. Then perhaps I should ask, do you have a, a plan to not be horribly maimed? I'm going to put up Igus and summon Destiny, then activate the Ruids. Hopefully that'll keep some distance between us. Igus is a shield I'd made for me, and Destiny is my spear. Both were fitted with magic runes by an acquaintance of mine in exchange for letting her do experiments on me. Jake, do you remember that she was a ranged attacker, right? It is her specialty, Zuma pointed out. Yeah, but so am I. My weapons work well in case someone gets too close. But all of my attack spells work best at a distance. Jake, you cannot attack her with your attack spells. She would be obliterated. Zuma shouted. Don't worry, I won't use Railgun or Lightning Bolt. Besides, those take too long anyway. I was just going to use my fireballs and the runes of my weapons. Even still, it seems a bit too dangerous, she said, worried. Won't there be healers standing by? Yes, but healing magic has its limits. I'll be careful, I said. A few moments later, we arrived at the pit for my match. There were dozens of other Niema perched on poles and vines set up around the pit's dome. Members of every squad had come to watch. Even the captain and major had come. Zuma, as we got closer, Zuma flew over and perched with the other members of our team. Now you nervous? Odin's asked. A little, I said. That's probably smart, Nine said, laughing. Any last words? Mal asked jokingly. Very funny. I said, ducking under the bars of the dome and dropping into the pit. Please try not to get hurt too badly, Jake, Suma said. Even you, Suma, I thought. The lieutenant landed on the ground at the other end of the pit. In between us, Captain Gagalus, our team's leader, landed. All right, the captain started. The rules are as follows. No lethal spells, no purposefully maiming one another beyond heeding capabilities. No using summoned creatures or familiars. No leaving the pit. And absolutely no hard feelings after you lose. When he said that last part, his eyes cut to me for a moment. I sighed. I knew I wasn't going to win. But did they have to keep reminding me? Do you both consent to this bout? I do, Dadu said. I do, I said. Well, then. The captain flew up and out of the ring quickly. Begin! The lieutenant started before I could summon Destiny, but I was already in my armor and had Igus, so I wasn't caught off guard. She launched the attacks with fire in rapid succession. Bang, bang, One after another hit Igus, but I barely felt it. I summoned Destiny and pointed the tip to her. I activated the runes, and a soft ball-sized bullet of air shot out at her. In this instant, she spread her wings and bolted straight up. The bullet just narrowly missed her tail feathers as it hit the ground behind her. As we started the fight, the cheers from the Crowther squads began. You got this, Viking! Get him, Lieutenant! Banning her wings again and turning on a dime, 
she dodged a second bullet I had fired. Trying to keep track of her in flight was like trying to watch a bumblebee fly around. My eyes almost couldn't keep up. She launched two more attacks from the front. Pang, chang. That first hit Igus, but the second connected with the armor on my shin. That one, I felt, even through the metal. I could feel the force of the attack, like someone shoved my leg to the side. I managed to avoid losing my footing and activated the rune on Igus. A wave of force exploded from the shield, knocking me back slightly with the recoil, but not too severely. I had plenty of time to practice and get used to it back at boot camp while training with the attack majors. The wave hit her and sent her flying to the other end of the ring, but it didn't seem like it had hurt her much. I dropped Destiny to the ground and shouted, FIREBALL! and sent a weakened version of my normal fireballs at her. It was much smaller because I used less mana, and it was more bright purple than normal as well. I thought that she would dodge it. I was wrong. Instead, she caught it with mana wrapped and did a barrel roll, and the fireball changed directions mid-fight and was flung back at me. I dropped Igus to my side to cast a spell, and couldn't react fast enough to put it back up. My spell hit me square in the chest plate, knocking the wind out of me. At the time, I was surprised, but thinking back on it, I was grateful that the attack didn't hit her. Even holding back, I still put way too much power into the attack. It might have really hurt her. Vines! she shouted, casting her first verbal spell of the match. Instantly, the vines that were scattered randomly around the pit started wrapping themselves around my arms and legs. I activated the runes on my armor, not bothering to think specifically about which ones and simply activated them all. I knew I had one rune for times like this, but didn't even have enough time to remember what it was. I felt several things happen all at once. My chest stopped hurting as the healing rune activated. I stopped breathing so heavily as the stamina rune kicked in, and a massive blast of air shot out from every inch of my armor, forcing the vines off of me. Splinters and chunks of vines shot across the arena, and I quickly stood back up and summoned Igus while the lieutenant was distracted with that. It didn't take her long to adapt, though. She dropped to the ground and put up a wall of vines to protect her. I summoned Mori, my sword, and activated its rune. A slash of air whipped towards the wall, leaving a gash and not doing anything to draw her out. I thought about using a spell to create some kind of trap around the wall and her, but wasn't able to because several vines had started wrapping themselves around my legs again. I was about to activate the runes again, but the vine suddenly went taut and I was pulled off my feet. I hit the ground and was dragged for several seconds before I tried activating the runes. This time, nothing happened. Well, I still got the healing and the stamina boost, but there was no explosion. I dropped Mori and Igus when I was toppled, so I resummoned them and cut the vines with Mori. I stood up quickly and cast a spell that engulfed the wall of vines that had been protecting the lieutenant. I thought I had managed a miracle and won until I was hit in the back five times and had my organs rattled. Ka-clang, ka-clang, clang. I fell to the ground, and the lieutenant landed next gracefully to my battered body. It felt like one of the scenes in an anime where somebody gets rocked hard and cough up a liter of blood. Ugh! I moaned painfully. She definitely broke one of my ribs with that last one. Una, Lieutenant Datahu, the captain announced. Yep, that's about right, I thought. Good job, Sentinel, and thank you for the bout. I will be sure to put in your memory delving request, she said. No problem. Thanks. Was all I was able to strain out. She flew away, and I activated my armor's healing rune. End of chapter. Chapter 14 Jake's Point of View 
Bueno, Lieutenant Datto, the captain announced. The crowd started cheering and shouting, praise the lieutenant, while I laid in the dirt floor at the pit. Yep, that's about right, I thought. Good job, Sentinel, and thank you for the bout. I will be sure to put in your memory diving request, she said. No problem, thanks, was all I was able to straighten out. She flew away, and I activated my armor's heating burn. Suma landed beside me after a few seconds, and I finally managed to gather enough strength to sit on my knees instead of laying down. Well, she said sympathetically, at least you didn't die. I was pretty sure that she was teasing me, but it felt kind of touch and go at times during the fight. Yeah, and she agreed to put in the request, so uh, that's good, I said, checking my rib. They had healed, so I stood. Row and Odin's blew down and landed beside Suma. I lost two gambling seeds on that fight, Jake, Rose said as he shook his head sadly. I don't think he was really that worried about it, though. I made two, Odin's added, laughing. Your confidence in me is overwhelming, I said sarcastically. Don't take it the wrong way, Odin said. I probably couldn't beat you in a belt, but you were fighting the lieutenant. That match was decided before you ever even showed up. Well, uh, she was a court mage after all, Roe added. Our court mage is really that impressive. I mean, I lost, yeah. But was it really that obvious what was going to happen? I asked, confused. Yes, Jake, Silma said plainly. That is why I asked if you had any sort of special plan before you started. What makes him so special? I got my butt kicked, sure, but why was everyone so certain I would lose? I asked. I mean, even I knew I was, but why? I had been hearing people talk about court majors and royal majors for over a year now, and they were always words of praise. But I've never ever heard a single description as far as I could remember, other than that they were extremely strong and skilled. Maltestart court majors have battlefield experience, so right away that should tell you something, Rose said. And they are all chosen from the best of the high majors, Odin's added. Yeah, that's the ranking system all majors fall into, right? Zuma mentioned something about that, I asked. Yes, sir. Even achieving high mage status is a feat in itself, so becoming a court mage is a rare event, Zuma said. As you know, I am a medium class. I think most people here are, although I heard there are one or two high class mages in the second squad, Odin said. What does someone have to do to go up in rank, I asked. Perform well on the battlefield, that is the main qualifying factor, Zuma said. But there are a set of trials as well. I do not know what they are, however. I heard you had to slay a lesser dragon single-handedly, Rose said. No one knows, though. It's a very well-kept secret, Odin said. No one knows much about the court majors, and rumors are all most people have to go on, huh? I guess that explains why people are so quick to pretty much mythologize them, I thought. Well, all that aside, you did well in your match, Jake, Suma complimented. They all talked a bit more about stories they'd heard about court mages, and they told me a legend of some of the famous court mages of the Fort the Vikings. After that, Roe and Odin's left, and Suma sent me home for the day. Good thing, too. After all that healing, I was exhausted. I plopped down on my bed and texted my mum that I was home safe, then went to sleep. There wasn't anything left to do now, except wait to see if we got approved for the memory delve. Honestly, things have been going fairly smoothly for the past few days, I should have known something was going to happen. Familiar Zachariah, you have been brought before the Royal Council to explain the events of your actions that occurred during the Battle of Dragon's Fall Bay. End of chapter. Chapter 15 
Zachariah's point of view. Familiar Zachariah, you have been brought before the Royal Council to explain the events and your actions that occurred during the Battle of Dragon's Fall Bay. And here I was thinking that I was here just because you lot missed me so much, I said. As impudent as ever, I see. Impact, one of the generals of the Royal Army, spat. He was a disciplined and annoying little bird. Actually, I think I may be getting better at it. It must be all the practice, I replied. Enough bickering. We have more important matters to deal with within your tiresome back and forth. One of the council members interrupted. Indeed, General, we need to get back to punishing this man who won the battle, I said. Your actions are no laughing matter, familiar Zachariah. You have committed several heinous acts and used the magic we ordered you to never use again. Another of the council members shouted. If I hadn't, then you would have lost the battle and the lives of every soldier present. My actions were not only necessary, they were justified, I said. So you admit that using the forbidden magic then? General Himpak asked. I did, but as I said, it was necessary. We will be the judges of that, the council member who had shouted earlier scoffed. Familiar Zachariah, we want you to start with the events that led up to the battle and then explain how you came to the conclusion that your actions were justified. The head of the council, Bardic Sopra, said calmly. He was a reserved man who very rarely showed his feelings or spoke without thinking. We had met on several occasions, usually during trials such as this one. For me, it started when I was ordered to Dragonsport Bay to reinforce the defenses against the invasion. Perhaps start a little closer to the actual events in question, General Himpak said. Sounding a bit irritated. Fine. I'd received word that the battle had begun and that the front needed reinforcements. Ambos and I decided to volunteer to assist. And where is Sir Ambos today? I expected him to be here with you, Bardic Sokra asked. He had a personal matters that needed attending, so he was unable to join us at this time. I explained. I see. Well, his presence is not necessarily needed in this meeting, but it is not a matter that bears worry. Please continue. The enemy had flown from their ships to the shore and were beating down our fortifications. Ambos and I decided that the best course of action was to attack the ships themselves. They were striking and retreating to the safety of their ships to rest and recuperate, so we reasoned that destroying their ships would force them to land on shore where our defenses were strongest and could deal with them better, I said. Hey, why, strategy? How did that play out? It went well at first, but they broke our lines a few hours later. So in the end, all it did was buy us time. How exactly did you defeat 37 transport ships? Each has enough supplies to transport over a thousand Yama. They are effectively floating fortresses, one of the council members asked. We deemed it was impossible to attack them from above or behind, so we didn't. Ambos cast a spell that allowed us to travel under the water while I sank their ships with a rot spell. And that was when you used your death magic? Sopra asked. That is correct. And was that the only time in the battle that you used it? No. I also used it later in the battle. Please, tell us about that instance. I took a deep breath and began. Four hours after casting the spell, all the ships had finally sunk, and the soldiers were still resigning on them had landed on the shore. My plan was going as expected, and the defenses were dealing with them accordingly. However, 
some of the soldiers were apparently able to overcome the defenses and capture a strategic point. This allowed them to push back and start gaining ground. As I spoke, I noticed several of the council members were whispering amongst themselves, clearly unhappy about something. One of them flew over to the head of the council, Bardic Sopra, and whispered something to him. He simply nodded, apologized for the interruption, and asked me to continue. A tactical retreat was ordered from the front to regroup and reorganize. Myself, Ambos, and around a hundred other soldiers stayed behind to cover the retreat. And that was when you used your death magic again? One of the council members asked. Yes. Why? As the battle raged, the 100 slowly started to dwindle. Soon, there was only 70, then 50. By the time I realized what was happening, only 25 of us remained. We needed reinforcements, but I knew we were not going to get any. So I cast the spell that brought the survivors' time to fall back. The spell? It was a famine type, correct? Bardic Sopra asked. Yes. What was its effects? It caused approaching soldiers to become weak with hunger. Once they crossed the threshold I had designated during the spell's casting, it would take effect. That spell saved the lives of the remaining twenty-five. So you did use the lethal form of forbidden magic? The council member, who shouted earlier, shouted again, as if he had caught me in some kind of trap. No, the spell itself was not lethal, I denied. Then the soldiers who were affected by the spell lived? Sopra asked. No. Most of them died, I said. Can you explain the contradiction? He asked, confused. The spell itself wasn't what killed them. It was most likely uh, the fall. Fall? Well, most of them were flying when they crossed the threshold. The ones that were atop their familiars may have survived, but they would have fallen off their familiars when the weakness took hold. I speak from experience. Being trampled by a familiar is not something one has a great chance of surviving, I explained. The council members all started grumbling to themselves again, looking quite upset. He admits it. He used a forbidden magic and used it in a way that we specifically instructed him not to. I followed your instructions to the letter. I did not cast any spell that took the lives of Anirma in any way considered vile, I declared. You just admitted to killing those Niema with... The council member yelled, but was cut off by Bardic Sopra. Enough, Zagariah. The council needs to consider what you have told us. Until the decision has been made, please return home and await our next summons. With that, I was escorted out of the council's meeting room by several Niemma guards. I contacted Ambos and told him what happened. He summoned me, and I reappeared next to him in our home. Did you finish? I asked. I did. Ashim is uneasy about something, but he wouldn't tell me about what, Ambos said. What can make a dragon nervous? I asked. Very few things, and all of them are bad. And he didn't want any help dealing with it. No, he said it was a private matter between the dragons, Ambos said. Any idea of what it could be? I asked. If I had to guess, uh, I'd imagine it's Deja. Yes, the strange one. As far as dragons go anyway, I agreed. But nonetheless, if he doesn't want our help, there is nothing we can do, Ambos said dejectedly. He was close friends with Ashen, and has known him longer than anyone. He feels he owes him a great debt as not being able to help him probably hurts. Jake, I'm sure he'll call on you if he needs any help, I told Ambos. Jake, Ambos nodded, but still seemed sad. Jake! End of chapter. Chapter 16. Jake's point of view. Jake! I was startled awake. I looked around, but no one was there. 
Hello, I called out. No one answered. Suma, I asked, activating our private connection. Jake, thank the dragons. I've been trying over and over again to summon you, but it wasn't working, Suma shouted. You have? Yes, but you okay? Uh, I'm fine. I was asleep or... No. I was having one of those uh, vision-slash-dream things again. I'm going to try summoning you again, Suma said. Wait! I shouted, and dove off my bed to get some trousers. Luckily, I'd fallen asleep too tired to take off my pajama shirt, but I still needed shoes and stuff. I had just enough time to put on my hands on my pants and a pair of shoes before disappearing. When I reappeared, I was in an uncomfortable position. My arms and legs splayed out, each one connected to some separate article of clothing. Oh, sorry. I suppose I should have waited a tad longer, Suma apologized. Well, at least I was already wearing socks, a shirt and pants. I stood up, collected the strode about clothes, and got dressed. It's fine, I said. So, what was the vision about this time? A voice came from behind me, asked. I turned and saw Lieutenant Data, who... Oh, Lieutenant, I didn't see you, I said. She was able to secure a memory delve faster than expected. That is why I was trying to summon you, Suma explained. Yes, the Major wants you to battle ready as soon as possible, so he pushed the request through for me, the Lieutenant said. Oh, good. Please tell him I said thanks. You will be able to tell him yourself he's going to be present during the delve. He is? Suma asked. He wants to make sure his investment pays off. That's a nice way of putting it, I thought to myself. I may not be the smartest guy around, but even I knew that why he wanted to come. So, uh, who will be performing the delve? Is it one of the base's staff members? Suma asked. No, actually. I was told I was going to be one of the major advisors who specializes in merry-merry magic. What about everything you said about proper procedures and following protocol when we first asked you? I asked. The privilege of the highest is that they can glide the farthest, the lieutenant said. Suma's feathers ruffled a bit, and her sparkle dimmed for a second. I guess she wasn't happy to hear that for some reason. What's wrong? I asked her over our private connection. I dislike the idea of one of the Major's closest allies going through your memories. She said worried. Why? I'm concerned about what else they will be looking for while they are inside our minds. Is there anything we can do? I asked. No. One way or another, someone will have to perform the delve, and they will most likely report what they find to the Major for him to do with as he pleases. I dislike the reality of the situation, but we need the delve, so there is nothing we can do. Suma sounded rejected, but didn't suggest calling off the delve. I can't say I'm in love with the idea of someone poking around inside my head, but I'm also getting kind of tired of hallucinating someone else's knife. As am I, Sue replied. Do you two have the ability to communicate without speaking aloud? Lieutenant Datu asked, snapping us out of our private conversation. Uh, yeah? Should I be insulted or impressed? She asked. We were discussing the thought about the dull being performed by one of the Major's advisors, Suma explained. Well, I get the feeling that you'll not have much luck trying to find someone else to do it, the lieutenant said. Meaning he wants inside my head and he'll throw his weight around to make sure it happens, I said. I see. You're probably right. The Major is a good man, but he did not reach such a height perch by letting opportunities fly past him, the lieutenant said. The conversation probably would have continued, but the sounds of rapping stopped us. Seconds later, the Major and three others landed on vines nearby. The setup for the Dull was the same as it was back when I was interviewed after killing the Virum last year. One EM to cast the Dullving spell, one to ask questions, and one to monitor my well-being. They were only doing me at the moment, instead of doing both Suma and me at the same time. I guess they only had one of those memory seekers available.
Sentinel, please lay down, the Major said as a bed of vines formed about knee height. Am I going to be put to sleep? They didn't do that last time, I said lying down. No, but it'll be easier for us this way, and less dangerous. Less dangerous? Well, if you do lose consciousness, you could fall. Also, the situation is rather unique. Memory dolls have never been used in this way before, he said. Please don't fry my brain, I thought to myself. All right, I'm ready. The Niyama who'd cast the magic circle around me, and who's going to be doing the doll for us, said. Yeah, me too, I said. Then, uh, let us begin. Suma's point of view. Sentinel, I want you to think about the first time you saw this, uh, figure in flame. The Niyama in charge of guiding Jake through the question said. The Major, Lieutenant Datto, and myself were all perched near Jake, watching the delve. How is that, uh, that church? Jake said. Church? The interviewer asked. I think it was called the Sanctum or something. Suma and I were about to form our bonding ritual thing, and he came out of nowhere and demanded she give me a new name, Jake explained. Ah, yes. You mean the Grand Sanctum of Zack Ashton? Did he do anything else besides demanding a name? No, after that he left, Jake said. The interviewer looked over to the other two Niema. They each nodded, and he continued the questions. Then when was your next encounter? A month or two later, I think. He was able to catch me in between being summoned. Can you explain what you mean? Suma summoned me so that we could name my weapons. But he interrupted it and pulled me somewhere, Jake said. Where do you know? It felt like a dream. I was floating in a void, and there was this light. I went to it, and it was him. What did he do this time? The interviewer asked. He, uh, threatened me, and told me that we were friends. He really didn't make any sense that time, or any time. I don't know one mage in the modern era capable of interrupting a summoning, the major whispered to the lieutenant. That is probably because none exist anymore, and haven't in several hundred years, she answered. Did you see the being again after that? The interviewer asked Jake, not minding the major and lieutenant's conversation. Yes. When? He interrupted the summons again, but going the other way this time. Sumo was sending me back home. We'd been exploring a cave during a training exercise for a training camp. It was too small for me, so she sent me back. And what did he do this time? He said, uh, I was standing on his head. Do you know what he meant? We never figured it out, Jake said. The Major looked nervous and interrupted the doll with a question of his own. What exactly did he say? The Major sounded upset, concerned even. I thought maybe it had to do with the military matters, but the Lieutenant looked as confused and surprised by his sudden outburst as the interviewer was. Um, I don't remember exactly, just that I was standing on his head and that I'd never been closer, and then he suddenly said that I was far away. The Major did not look satisfied with Jake's answer but he did not ask her any follow-up questions. And how many more times did you meet the figure after that? The interviewer asked. A few more, Jake said. And do any of them stand out to you? Yeah. There was only one time where he actually did anything to me. That's when all of the hallucination stuff started. Okay, let's go ahead and move to that instance. What can you tell me about what happened? It started off like any of the other ones. He said things that didn't make any sense, then said I was getting stronger, Jake said. What made this time different then? Did he hurt you in some way? Yeah. He did something, and my head felt like it was going to explode. No! 
One of the assistants started to scream. She collapsed to the floor and the other two quickly flew over to her. Jake sat up and watched. What happened? Are you okay? The interviewer asked. It, it suddenly, it felt like I was watching thousands of memories all playing at the same time. The assistant answered weakly. Yeah, that's what it felt like to me the first time too, Jake said. We had theorized that the figure had implanted memories into Jake, and that is what has been causing all of this, I said. Memory magic, being used to forcibly push memories into someone's mind. I've heard of things like that before, but it fell out of practice over 200 years ago. Lieutenant Datuhu whispered. The Major nodded his head. So, does that mean we need to stop? I asked. I can continue, the assistant, who had gotten back up, answered. This is what we came to do, the Major said. All right, then, the interviewer said hesitantly, and looked at his assistant after going back to his perch. Sentinel, I want you to focus on one of the memories that were placed into you. Which one? Jake asked. You mentioned you had already seen some of them play out. Try focusing on one of those. The first time it happened, I was buying food at a store. I saw a Niamh named Amboss, but I thought I was a guy named Zachariah. Amboss and Zachariah, you said. Can you tell me anything about them? The interviewer asked, surprised. I couldn't blame him. Everyone knows the name Amboss. We live in the country of Amboss, after all. Um, Amboss likes raisins, and Zachariah was very sarcastic. Beyond that, not much. I know Zachariah killed a lot of Niema in the war, and in some pretty violent ways, apparently. I also know that he was familiar to Amboss, just like I am to Suma. Was he a Viking? He may have been. He was the same species, at least. But you can't tell just by looking, Jake answered. No, the Major asked. Could you tell what nation a Niemo was just by the color of the feathers? Jake asked, sounding a tad annoyed. The Major looked at the lieutenant for a moment, then answered. I suppose that is a fair point. But you could tell that he was the same species, right? The lieutenant asked. Yes, that I could tell. Anyway, Sentinel, the interviewer interrupted. A Viking familiar with a master named Ambos. This cannot be a coincidence. It is true, I said. I had a suspicion from the beginning, but it does confirm it. I'd really appreciate it if you guys started speaking in complete thoughts. Thanks, Jake complained. Sentinel, do you know of Ambos? The Major asked. Um, a little. Only what Suma has told me, though. It was like some kind of hero mage who may or may not have slayed the death dragon. That Ambos. Yes, most likely. So, so uh, we think I have the hero's familiar memories in my head, Jake asked. When someone implants their memories into another person in that way that the figure of flame did, it doesn't just put their memories into them, their thoughts, emotions, worries, or even their desires. It puts a piece of them into you as well, the lieutenant said. What do you mean? I asked. Memory magic has never been my specialty, so I was fairly lost as well. There were thousands of memories overlapping one another, and then he actually believed himself to be Zachariah. That isn't just memory magic. That is more like soul magic, the assistant said. Sentinel, I think that figure of flame put a piece of himself into you, the interviewer said. But there was Zachariah's memories, Jake said, still confused. The lieutenant nodded her head. Yes, which probably means that the figure was Zachariah himself. End of chapter. Lieutenant Datahu's point of view. An unwelcome revelation. That's how I would describe it. Not just for Suma and her familiar, Sentinel, but for the kingdom of Ambos as a whole. Zachariah 
an actual Viking, and the familiar of the mage who founded our country still lives. Not only that, though, he has somehow transcended his mortality and gained unknown powers that allow him to cast spells that have seen been unavailable to him. He was a chaos mage, but by implanting his memories and even a portion of his own soul, he has demonstrated the ability to use both order and chaos magic alike. What is your assessment, Dadahu? The major asked. We were perched in his private quarters, talking about Sentinel and the newly revealed Zachariah. It was night, so we had a fire spell active to see. It didn't illuminate the whole room, but we could see each other well enough. An added bonus was that the fire kept the night's cold air at bay as well. On which, sir? I replied. Either, both. Regarding this, uh, Zachariah, I don't know enough yet. From what I do know, I would say it doesn't make sense. Agreed. How can someone use both order and chaos magic? It should be impossible. Even among the dragons, using both in a single individual would seem impossible. He said, agitated. At least according to the stories, anyway, I pointed out. What are you suggesting? Perhaps we were wrong, or perhaps the truth was lost to time. The dragons have been gone for centuries, and the death dragon has been gone even longer. Over time, stories get retold, twisted, even forgotten. So our history may not have happened like we believed. It is possible, he said softly, and nodded his head. Do you have any theories? None, sir. What of Sentinel? The fight against him went well for you. Do you have an assessment of him? I do. I would like to hear it. In my opinion, Sentinel may be the most dangerous threat this world has faced in a thousand years. Really? But you won the fight. He sounded surprised. In reality, he was the one who actually requested the fight. When Sentinel first arrived at the base, the Major told me to find an opportunity to have a bout with him. He wanted to know how strong he was, and if he could be defeated. I did win. I believe it was mere circumstance or luck, I said. How so? A bout is not an effective method of judging an opponent's strength. Sentinel was bound by several rules and regulations that prevented him from utilizing his most dangerous spells. As were you, the Major pointed out. Yes. But I also have decades of experience and was raised from birth to be a mage. Sentinel had none of that. So you are saying you think that in a real fight that he could beat you? The Major asked. I'm saying that I would pray to the dragons that Sentinel would not want to fight me. Why? Because I would never even see him. Are you referring to the events of the entrance exam? During the exam, Sentinel had used a spell he had only seen once, and with such force that it nearly killed everyone present, despite it being a long-range spell, which we are typically weaker. I am. But not only that, during our fight, Sentinel launched several attacks at me, one of which was a purple ball of flames, Yes, I saw that. It was, well, uh, it was harrowing, like watching a bad dream suddenly become reality, or a monster in a child's tale take from in front of me. That was one of the most powerful attacks that it has ever been directed at me. It took everything I had to redirect it. After that, flying caused me incredible pain. I tore several muscles in my wings, and was forced to fight from the ground until I was able to cast a heating spell, I explained. Was it truly that strong? I am fully convinced that if it had connected with me, I would have died. The same is true for all the Sentinel's attacks during our bouts. Even an attack generated by simple ruin knocked me out of the air as if it was nothing. For him, it was a simple bout, but I was fighting to stay alive. I will be sure to have a talk with Sentinel. He was supposed to be holding back during the bout, the Major said, standing a bit upset. He was holding back, sir. The spells he used were all scaled-down versions of spells I have seen him use several times during training. 
and according to reports from several of his squad members from his tenure at boot camp, he has produced spells even larger than the ones he has displayed here. So you believe that you would lose to his overwhelming strength? I do. But if it were an up-close fight, I believe I would stand a chance. However, as previously stated, I doubt that I would get the utter opportunity. His long-ranged attacks, the Major said. His specialty, I said, but not his only attribute. His chaos magic, the Major said, with his concern showing clearly. And his physical strength. I landed several solid attacks to his back, and held back, of course. But even with that, I would have still expected to have seen more damage. Those metal garments of his are truly formidable. And I can only imagine how much they weigh. Yet he's able to move around surprisingly quickly while wearing them, I said. I'd heard that he was quite slow, the Major said. His traveling speed is atrocious, but his combat movement speed is a bit faster. He is still rather sluggish, but I wonder how much faster he would be if he were not wearing those garments. And all of this is why you believe him to be so dangerous. The ability to deal massive attacks from beyond our striking range, a constitution able to withstand the attacks of an average mage, and access to magic so dangerous that it is illegal in almost every country on Atmosia. Yes, sir. Sentinel is dangerous. What is your recommendation, Datahu? The Major asked. We take advantage of his one weakness. Which is? His master, Suma. Sentinel will continue to follow the orders of his master. So as long as we maintain a good relationship with the Sentinel, will remain our ally. Jake's point of view. I was at home in my apartment, lying in bed. In my hands was all the magic I was able to muster while still on Earth. A single navy blue orb about the size of a golf ball. Over a year of training and practice, and this was all I was able to create outside of Suma's world. If I switched to a new method of using my own internal mana instead of mana I collected from the environment, then the orb turns purple and gets smaller. Coincidentally, about the size of a grape. If I try to summon any of my weapons or my armor, nothing happens, but I do get a feeling that I'm getting close sometimes. I let the orb dissipate and pulled out my phone from my pocket to call my mum. Hello, she answers. Hey mum, just calling to let you know I'm home now, I said. My, you stayed rather late tonight, didn't you? Yeah, sorry for not telling you, but we met with a specialist to figure out what has been going on with me. A specialist? Did they find out anything? Yeah mum, they did. Apparently their faming figure guy was the cause, I said. Did they know what he did? Yeah. He shoved a bunch of memories into my head, and a piece of his soul too. You know, Jake, I've heard you say some pretty strange things in the last few months, but I think that may have been right up there with when you told me that you worked for a bird, my mum said in a unique mix of dry sarcasm and motherly concern. Do they know how to fix it? Not yet, but they said the portion of his soul he put into me might simply go away on its own. Oh, okay. Does that mean he'll die? She asked. I asked the same thing, but apparently no. Then what will happen to him? They don't know. They haven't ever seen something like this before. Apparently it used to be a fairly well-known thing, but it stopped being used a long time ago, I explained. Our conversations have gotten a lot stranger than they used to be, haven't they? Mum pointed out. I laughed a little and agreed. I explained a bit more about what happened and the results of Sumastal. Since she hadn't had a severe reaction to the memories, they figured that what she experienced was most likely a kind of overflow from me. After spending a little while talking, we hung up. It was about 8 o'clock right now, and I was starving. I made a sandwich and sat on my couch to watch some TV. I expected to have a quiet night at home, but maybe that was hoping for too much. Because a few moments after I finished my sandwich, there was a knocking at my door. I got up to see who it was. Hello, 
I said through the closed door. Are you Mr. Jake Vandal? The voice outside said. It was a man's voice. I looked through the peephole and saw two people in officers' uniforms. We are with the HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. We need to have a word with you, sir. End of chapter. Chapter 18. Jake's Point of View. I was sitting at the cold metal table in an interrogation room. In front of me were two officers. One was from the HMRC, and the other was a police officer from my city. Apparently, they wanted to talk with me about some abnormalities in my personal banking account. I can't say I blamed them. If I was a banker and over a hundred thousand pounds suddenly appeared in a person's account out of the blue, I'd notice and call the HMRC too. So, where did you get the money? The HMRC officer, his name was Detective Harwood, asked. If this is about my taxes, I was pretty sure I filed them correctly. If there was any mistakes, I'm happy to pay the difference, I said nervously. I have fought virums, experienced mages, and corrupt nobles, but this was still making me sweat. Drugs, right? Nobody happens to find a hundred thousand pounds in the dirt outside. Just tell us who you were selling to, and you might get off easy, the local officer said, and I think she said her name was Detective Lynn. No, I'm not selling drugs, I denied. Then how do you explain the money? Did little birdie just give it to you on your front door? Detective Harwood asked. Um, I admit, for a second I panicked. He was closer than he realized after all. My brain kind of went blank for a second as I just sat there with a dumb look on my face with my mouth open. I, uh, I just, uh, I sold stuff, but not drugs, just like, uh, legal stuff, really. Because according to your credit card reports, you spent over 300 quid on bulk purchases of paper in the last year, Detective Lynn said. Yeah, I sold paper and stuff. I bought it in bulk and sold it, I said. He wore paper and managed to sucker someone into giving him money for it. Just must be have been charging a thousand pounds per sheet, Detective Howard said. Here's what we think. You bought a paper and made cash, literally. You think I'm counterfeiting? I asked, shocked. My stomach was in knots already, and this wasn't helping. I, uh, I think I want to talk to a lawyer. And do you realize how guilty that makes you look? Detective Lynn said in a cold, calm way. If you aren't doing anything illegal, why do you need a lawyer? I suddenly remembered the advice my dad used to say when I first started driving. If you get arrested, no matter what happens, always ask for a duty solicitor. I want to talk to the duty solicitor, I said. I wish I could have said that sounded confident, but my voice cracked halfway through. Hmm, fine, Detective Harwood said and gave a follow-me-in head nod to Detective Lynn. They called the station's duty solicitor, and he came to talk with me. It took half an hour for him to arrive, though, and all the while I was stuck in the interrogation room that was at least three degrees too cold for humans to live in. Or maybe that was just the chills running down my spine. The duty solicitor was an overweight middle-aged man with dark brown skin and a bald head and a charcoal grey suit. His name was Lawrence. As soon as he arrived, he started talking. He went over all my rights, asked if I needed to call anyone, and asked if I had a personal lawyer I needed or wanted to call. I called my mum and let her know what was happening and to call our lawyer. Then I had a long conversation with the duty solicitor. Everything we say to each other is just between us. Nothing gets reported to the police, he said. I didn't do anything, I said. Okay, that's good. Can you explain to me what happened then, Lawrence asked. I can't. I'm not going to lie to you. That's not the great response. I really didn't commit any crimes, at least. I don't think I did. So why can't you explain? Because, uh, I get put into a mental institution. Also, no one would believe me, I said, sighing. 
Do you think you should be put into a mental institution? Baron asked. No, I said, after thinking about it for a second. He didn't look convinced, but moved on anyway. If it isn't illegal, why did the police think you committed a crime? He asked. Lawrence interlocked his fingers and placed his elbows forward on the table. His hands and arms were now making a triangle in front of his body. Because it looks illegal to an outside observer. I'm going to give you some professional legal advice, don't say that. Whether it be in a court or to any of these officers. Yeah. So let me hear some context to what is going on. I know you can't explain in detail, but what about it generally? Generally? I thought for a moment. Yeah, I can think I can do that. Basically, my friend Sumer and I started selling things to rich people and charging a lot of money for it. Well, that certainly is not illegal. Why paper? Lawrence asked. Because they wanted it. I really don't have any reason, better reason than that. Okay. I should also note, I stopped doing these things a few months ago. I had to move, so I lost everyone who wanted to buy from me. And what crime are they accusing you of exactly? None of this sounds like enough reason to suspect you're breaking the law, he asked. They think I'm counterfeiting money. Because you bought and sold paper. I should probably say that I made over a hundred thousand pounds doing this, I admitted. Okay, things are starting to make sense now. Lawrence leant back, taking his elbows off the table and dropping his hands to his sides. Do you have any proof that you made the money legally? I doubted. There was no paper trail, no receipts, and I was paid entirely in gold coins. As soon as I said the last part, I quickly added with a, but I can explain why. Lawrence looked at me for a second, probably questioning his life choices, and wondering how he got to this point. I felt his pain. I don't, uh, gold coins? He asked. Yes. I still have some in my apartment, actually. All right. Do you happen to have a therapist? He asks. Ah, great. He thinks I'm crazy, I thought, but answered him anyway. I do. Great. I'd like to get her number, so if you could, as well as the emergency contact if you have one. I think he had his fill for me and wanted someone he thought was sane. I decided to go along with it, hoping that maybe Dr. Maxwell could convince him that I was sane at least. I gave him her number and my mum's number as well. After that, he left the room to make the calls. About ten minutes later, Lawrence came back in. She says that you are mentally stable, but that you occasionally have hallucinations. I told her about everything in my last appointment. She knew everything already after that. Your mother is on her way with your family, this lawyer. My legal advice to you, Mr. Vandal, is to do whatever your lawyer tells you to do, and to not answer any questions he doesn't talk to you about first. You may have an insanity defense, but your therapist claims that you're a sound mind. Personally, I'd switch therapists. That one doesn't seem to be very good. I can see why you'd think that, I said flatly, with my head in my hands. After that, Lawrence left. It only took an hour for my mum and Robert, our family lawyer, to arrive, as well as Dr. Maxwell, and put her on speaker. I had explained the situation to her before Robert arrived, so she knew to play along. After talking, we came up with a moderate plan of action. Basically, tell the truth, let Robert do the talking, and only speak when spoken to. After we came up with that plan, the officers came back, and they resumed the interrogation. Can you explain how you acquired the money in question? Detective Lynn asked. Legally through buying and selling merchandise to customers, I said. Robert had prepared me for a few of the questions they might ask, and said I should follow a basic script even if they didn't ask those questions exactly. According to our records, you have been unemployed for almost a year and a half now, Detective Harwood pointed out. That is correct, I said, and looked over at Robert, who nodded slightly at me, letting me know I was still on script. So how can you explain the money? Harwood asked. 
You'll find that my clients reported all of his profits from those transactions on his tax reports, Robert interrupted. We weren't suggesting that Mr. Vander was hiding his taxes, but rather the means by which the money itself was gained is being called into question, Detective Lynn said. I assure you, all of the money my client has was acquired legally. Absolutely, I stated. Right. And Mr. Vandal, can you tell us again how you were able to sell paper for over 100,000 pounds? Detective Howard asked. 100,000? Robert asked, shocked. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, I apologized. Well, um, the price of merchandise is meaningless. The point is that it was all acquired legally, Robert said, stumbling over the first few words. Can you prove that? Detective Lynn asked. Can you prove that it wasn't? Robert asked. Detective Lynn and Harwood glanced at each other for a moment, then back at us. You have to admit it is ridiculous. My client does not have to admit anything. You have been accusing him of illegal actions without enough evidence, and he does not need to take such an affront. He came to this interview willingly and without any warrants. Thus, he is free to leave. Let's go, Jake. Robert started to stand up, but he was an older fella, so it wasn't a quick endeavor. With that, we left. Mum was waiting for us outside in the car park. Jake, are you okay? I'm fine, Mum, I said, and hugged her. Thank you, Robert, Mum said, and hugged him too. It's no problem, but uh, they're not just going to let this go. End of chapter. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon, WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.